Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Raymond Batoni. Raymond is co-director of personal care consultancy agency My Salon Manager and also owner of hair salon business Raymond Batoni Hairdressing. Uh, Raymond, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Hi Scott, thank you for having me, very grateful. It's such a pleasure for us welcoming you onto the airwaves um, as well. Um, normally, at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the topic of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start from that angle because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your business, just to what extent has it affected you and your operations in the services sector? So... Um Speaking as a salon owner, uh, as opposed to as a consultant, I think um, obviously the immediate thing is um, that the loss of revenue, income, you know, uh, almost a, pretty much a quarter of revenue completely wiped out, but also just um, kind of like a change of direction to begin with. It was a very unusual process. Um, a couple of weeks before we were forced into lockdown, and you know, we'd started to see a, a decline in uh, client engagement and appointments. Um, it had become very challenging to actually be open, I think, for ourselves and many other salons. Um, and it just felt very strange when we were put into lockdown to be calling people and cancelling appointments. I mean, it's the, the complete opposite to any business objective, I think, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Mm, it has been a very strange time for businesses in that respect, uh, for sure. And with some of the sort of COVID secure procedures that are now in place that have allowed salons especially to start reopening again, um, do you think that some of these measures could well be in place for quite some time, even after we have a working vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an issue just because of the prolonged anxiety that this is likely to cause? Yes, I think so. Um, I mean, to me, it makes sense, you know, to try and protect your clients, protect your colleagues. Um, and I think it would be wise to continue on that sort of pace and on that mentality. Um, you know, I think it's our responsibility as um, leaders and our staff and our employees to to follow the guidance um, and you know look after everyone. Basically, we all have a duty, don't we? Exactly. Every leader does have a, a duty of care over customers, over staff. Exactly right. And um, have you actually? looking back at your experience of adapting to this new reality, would you say that you yeah. have maybe learnt anything in your leadership role as a result of all of this, maybe about yourself, how resilient your business is? Um, I mean, I think uh, for me, I, I tried to keep my team very much together during lockdown. You know, we used systems that we wasn't aware of before, such as um, you know, Zoom. Um, I think a lot of people were made aware of that throughout lockdown. But um, I've, I, Feel that I did quite a good job as a leader trying to, you know, keep everybody together, um, keep up the relationships with my team, um, and, you know, just trying to keep some engagement going without, you know, being intrusive. Um, it's a very strange time. Um, but no, I, I think in terms of 
the value of my business it's very difficult to put a value on myself I'm not like that but the value of our industry and our business I think it's never been um, a recognised value for hairdressers um, ever you know like clients were desperate to have their hair cut and um, you know nails done and everything else and um, I think the recognition for what we do as hairdressers beauty therapists anyone working in the personal care industry it's never been greater mm. um, people realise how much of an impact we have on on them and you know their well-being and how they feel um it's great it's a positive Mm, it's massive for people's mental health isn't it and thinking about that i'm thinking exactly about that issue just how important do you think that considering mental health is within leadership itself and that doesn't doesn't just go for those around you that you're working with but Mm. also your own because it is easy when you're sucked into the hectic world of running a business to sometimes forget to take a step back at times let alone during a crisis like this yeah it was it was incredibly challenging, and he spent um, a lot of time building relationships and growing people. And um, all of a sudden, you're stuck in your office at home, working out how can I keep everything glued together. Um, it was incredibly challenging, and um, you know, a huge time for sort of self evaluation and just trying to think out of the box. I think um, in order to survive, which has become a very a key word <laughs> across many businesses. Um, but no, it, you know. I think that's how I feel about it. It was it was challenging, I have to admit. Um, but I overcome that challenge. You know, do, do something about it. Take action. I think you feel a lot better at the end of the day when you you've done some bonding and you've done some training and you've you've implemented actions to solve the issues and the challenges you're facing. And more for humorous value, I suppose, I do have to ask this question, um, given the line of work that you are in. When you um, open back up after the initial lockdown and were able to start seeing customers again, was it apparent that you started to see a few sort of home hairdressing attempt disasters coming through the doors? Naturally, of course. Uh, some clients asking me to grade um, their haircuts. You know, a partner wants to know out of 10, how, <laughs> how, uh, how, did, how did they do? And I was kind of like, I was giving grades. The highest was a seven. Um, you know, and some people have actually discovered that actually, you know, shaving my head, I'm cool with that, which is, which is fine. I think um, the only negative to come out of that, well, not negative, but changing uh, behavior in our industry is that some people have kind of let the greys come through and actually they've learned to live with it so mm. less color coming into hair salons in some respects from certainly the older generations of our clientele or the demographic that's certainly very interesting and um how yeah. can you see sort of generally trends changing in the sector maybe as a result of um, all of this can you see there being sort of a big change in that sense or is it mainly just going to be with the presence of the ongoing sort of covid secure procedures in there do you think i'll be honest uh, currently measuring you know post uh, post lockdown um KPIs performance in my own salon talking to other salons and our salon personally hasn't seen much of a dip in overall sort of colour business or any sort of trends Um, you know people prolonging visits some salons are experiencing it I think working with a lot of other salons over um, 100 salons and groups in the country there's just no one size fits all nothing seems to be the same we're all very Mm. different depending on location demographic and of clientele and I think for us, I've not seen, we've not seen a change. The only change we have seen, as I said, is the, the silver um, foxes and vixens have decided to stop coming in for their regular colours and just embrace the grey, which, you know, we welcome. And instead, they've got a nice, sharp haircut. So, um, you know, there's, there's not been too much damage for our salon, but I understand that, you know, maybe in city-based salons that there has been a, a huge decline in client interaction, um, which is a huge shame. 
Yes, um, it is because it is an important part of the industry as well, that sort of human interaction. And when that sort of mood is damaged, it can be a little bit detrimental uh, for certain. Um, also, yeah. um, as well, thinking about sort of the impact on the economy, on sort of social interaction and also on their employment prospects. I imagine there are so many young people out there that are so downhearted by the current situation and what's yeah. happening. Um, so as yeah. somebody yourself who's gone and set up your own business from in your early 20s and become a success what message would you have to give to those youngsters out there to really get them to pick up their heads and get on that road to success themselves align yourself and be guided by someone that's dedicated to education um i think my immediate kind of response a lot of salons face the challenge of you know you've got this huge demand of clients um you know everybody wanted to be the first client through the door post lockdown and it just isn't it just wasn't achievable um and a lot of salons across the country, some even are still not training their apprentices. Now, for me personally, in the salons that I advise, I said to them, don't let these apprentices be the forgotten generation. Mm. Um, they're our stars of tomorrow. But in general, I think my brother, he's a lot younger than I, he's 18, and he's been struggling to get a good apprenticeship where someone's dedicated to training. I think it's all about the mentor and it's all about the company that you work for and apprentices, anyone looking to learn in the job find someone that cares and find someone that pushes you and develops you. Um, I guess that's my message. Don't just hang around. <laughs> Sorry. Mm. Education is so, so important because leadership itself is all about learning, isn't it? We're never a finished product in our profession, no matter how good we are. We're constantly yeah. and continuously improving and developing and seeking Absolutely. out a mentor early on. is one of the best things that you can do. Absolutely. My um, involvement with my sound manager, I actually started as a, um, a member of the consultancy that I now have, um, I'm a co-director of, and um, I sort of got to know the mentor, Simon, very well, um, and just on the basis that my business wasn't where I wanted it to be, and I knew I had to learn new skills to get it there, and he taught me, and I embraced it, and just, yeah, here I am. <laughs> Three years later, I'm helping him run it um, because I enjoy learning so much. It's such a big part of what we do every day. And I, I think growth and education develops a business like nothing else. You're absolutely right, Raymond. Now, um, I am conscious that our time on today's programme is now beginning to draw to its close. Um, but before we do wrap things up on the show, I would like certainly to talk about the future because um, yeah. over the next 12 months, it's going to be a period of significant change. We know that we're going to be stuck in a rut for a good period of it, perhaps until the uh, the spring because of these restrictions in place. Um, but hopefully by that point in time, we will have a working vaccine and can maybe start to focus on some of the challenges of the longer term future and begin to leave COVID behind. So with that in yeah. mind, um, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the next 12 months as a business? And where do you see yourselves being this time next year? Um, so I, my focus is to monitor, it's going to be incredibly boring, monitor the P&L of the business, see what's actually happening you know, right now rather than waiting for the end of the tax year um, and you know, finalising the accounts only to find out we've not met our objectives. So Monitoring the P&L, make sure we're comfortable, but overall, um, growth, training, development, and encouraging strengths rather than you know weaknesses. Traditionally, we've trained, or sometimes historically, companies, organizations have trained people on weaknesses. Well, actually, this is a time to really kind of work on your strengths and capitalize on those strengths as businesses. And you know, 
do what you do and do it better. Um, and that really is my focus. And we'll be sharing our objectives to our team, making sure that they understand what performance is required to survive this and to, to grow through it. And that's my ambition, growth. And what that ambition essentially shows is that it's so important sometimes to just go back to basics, do that right, and that's going to hold you yeah. in good stead. I mean, it might sound boring, yeah. but that is the key. You have to know what's going on in your business with the finances at this time. Um, it's incredibly valuable for any any business, not just mm. in our sector. Um, and I don't think smaller businesses, I think salons have learned that they need to be on top of the numbers and we need to be more sophisticated in our approach to our businesses. And that's where my consultancy business has absolutely thrived. Salon owners want to be better. They want to grow um, and they want to understand how their business can can get through this and more. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I I see growth. Um, and, you know, I still continue to hire, continue to develop, continue to train. Um, it's, a, it's a good time. I, I grew my business here. I started mm. in 2009, recession. Um, so I feel like I've kind of faced a challenge like this, albeit not as significant, and but still a challenge. And I think we can all make it through. We've just got to be you know, finger on the button. Exactly right. And I've got to say that optimism and that positivity is so, so infectious. And I think we all need a dose of it at a time like this because it can seem as if we're going around in circles sometimes with the whole COVID situation. Yeah. Um, I've got to say, Raymond, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed having you on the programme with us today. It's such a shame we don't have more time because we could discuss this long into the evening, I'm sure. Um, But (laughs) just given how much I've enjoyed it and how intellectually stimulating I imagine it's been for the listeners as well, I think it would be wonderful to actually catch up at some point in the next year and welcome you back onto the show just to see how some of your plans are starting to come along thank you that would be wonderful raymond thank you ever so much um, for your time today again it's really appreciated and so important in the wider context of what we're doing and most importantly as well do enjoy the weekend but do take care and do stay safe with everything that's still going on too you too take care scott thank you so much I'd also like to reiterate that message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in today. Please do continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it makes such a key, key difference in saving lives during this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Raymond Batoni, co-director of my salon manager and owner of Raymond Batoni Hairdressing onto the programme today. Um, Coming up next on the show, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during an illustrious football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But of course, he remains most well known for that famous treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. And to this day, he remains the only man to have scored a hat-trick in a FIFA World Cup final. So Jeff will be joining us to look back on some of the highlights of his career talking about the importance of robust leadership throughout, as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who have been doing all they can during this most trying time. So Jeff will be joining us very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, 
Speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I I'm want England to be successful I, I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just w- I really want the country to do well in, in anything in, in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want wanted to bury it and I'll be absolutely I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game's got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. 
an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with 
arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country. Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all sorts of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's a free ball to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kind of put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about but t- between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls up and not just tipping balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. 
Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just still well with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate. Hey, at West Ham, we, it was a great time at the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They'd won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs only a short spell at West Brom of course but I think uh, as I always jokingly say I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge then I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contributions to that success the club had so um, yes it, this, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with our third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend and, and I always joke and say you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses 
is, is within him to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey is I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life if we're involved in business is when you're managing people, you're managing them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. When um, you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.